RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. The book is 180. The author is Fergus O'Connor Greenwood. 180 degrees, unlearn the lies you've been taught to believe. And Fergus joins us on Reality Check Radio to tell us about his book and what it all means. Fergus, welcome to the program. Great to have you. Thank you for the invite. Nice to be here. And I think our audience are going to find this interesting and they're probably going to relate to a lot of it. But with that being said, 180 degrees, let's just start with that. I think you, I heard you say in an interview, that's not just an angle. It's more than an angle, 180. Mm-hmm. So yeah. What is it? Um, so what I'd say from the back cover, it says 180 degrees is not just an angle. It's an answer. Um, why? Because uh, when you reverse things, the lie often becomes more visible. So, for example, if we're looking at what happened in the last three and a half years, uh, we we were told to look through lens one. For example, the COVID-19 control measures were introduced because of the virus. But if you look through lens two, that is the virus was released as an excuse to introduce the control measures and the Trojan horse vaccine, which isn't um, actually a vaccine, then a lot of what's gone on, I would argue, makes no sense if you look through lens one and every sense if you look through lens two. Yeah, it's amazing, though, that so many people look through lens one. Yeah, so I would say anyone looking through lens one, ask yourself one question in hindsight now. Did they get anything right? So transmission of the disease, wrong. Asymptomatic spread, wrong. PCR testing, wrong. Fatality rates, wrong. Lockdowns, wrong. Quarantining healthy people, wrong. Impact on youth, wrong. Hospital overload, wrong. Plexiglass barriers, social distancing and outdoor spread, wrong. Mass wrong, variant impact wrong, natural immunity wrong, vaccine efficiency wrong, injection staying at the site wrong and vaccine injury wrong. So (laughs) if you look through lens one, the natural conclusion is these people are incompetent. Not just incompetent, but as incompetent as you could ever get. Yeah, I mean, beyond what you could ever get in a certain way, and that's my point. So if you look through lens two, these people are working to a script. It's a feature, not a bug. Put it this way, the law of averages states you can't be that unlucky. Or as James James Forrestal said in 1946, consistency never has been a mark of stupidity. If the diplomats who have mishandled our relations were merely stupid, they would occasionally make a mistake in our favour. So the point is they didn't get it wrong. They just lied about everything. Okay, so where does this, I mean, we mentioned the last three years a lot when when all of us are talking about this. But, But where is there a line in the sand here where this all starts? How do you mean in terms well, of Well, you know, we've had the last three years' experience, but it can't have been – it must have had, uh, you know, like an iceberg. There must be more under the water than just what we've seen in the last three years. You don't get to something oh, like yeah. this with, with the way it's worked, with the way the peace parts fit together, with, you know, what people call military-grade psyops all deployed. You don't just sort of magic that up. 
you ramp that up over time, don't you? Well, also, I mean, the point you're making is you, with that level of coordination we've seen throughout the world, that requires an enormous amount of planning. And uh, you can go at least back to um, the Rockefeller lockstep paper, I think, that came out in 2010, laying out what was going on. Obviously, we had the event 201 just before uh, you know, just happened to happen weeks before the uh, virus happened. They were doing uh, yeah, an exercise to show what would happen. Same with um, where the uh, virus emanated from in Wuhan. They had the military uh, Olympics there yeah. uh, a couple of weeks beforehand with 10,000 participants, you know. So I go through that in the book and all, all those points sort of leading up to it. I think there was a guy called Harry Vox as well who called this out from the lockstep paper in 2014. So right idea, but wrong timing. But no, th this takes an enormous amount of um, coordination and I would suspect there's probably some um, AI involved in this because you speak to some military planners and they just go, humans just aren't that good at doing this level of planning on this scale, you know. So that would be AI working out the combinations of moves that needed to be made to achieve a particular yeah. result rather than actually deciding to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, it's how would you implement this, you know. And, of course, in order for this to have happened, there's got to have been a lot of um, pawns put into place in terms of people in positions of power. Um, but maybe we can get into this with uh, the matrix table I sent through to you. Oh, yeah, I've got um, that in front of me. So um, because this is basically, um, yeah, how uh, let's call it the tyranny framework. Okay, so I have yeah. to give props here to James Lindsay from his new discourses, who's um, you can pick that up on YouTube, how to fight a tyrannical movement. But he also references Charles Eisenstein and René Giraud. So um, this isn't in the book, but it is a great matrix for understanding what's going on and leads in perfectly to how to communicate the truth. Okay. So let's, I think you've got the table in front of you. So obviously, I'm looking at it right now. So for anyone who's listening, uh, I'll try and explain it. It'd be nice to have a visual, but um, we're podcasting, so that's not possible. So imagine you've got a five by five table. So on the left-hand side, we have the, the five different groups. So we have ringleaders, strivers, normies, doubters, and rebels. Okay. Now, across the top, we have five different uh, columns, and they are a description of the group, the tools of control used to control that group, um, what those um, individual groups are lacking, what their motivation is, and how to flip them. Okay. So if we go through the uh, columns vertically, one at a time, starting with the ringleaders, so again, we have ringleaders, strivers, normies, doubters, and rebels. So the ringleaders, generally, they are pushing the agenda and the narrative. Now, the ringleaders, to be successful, they need to have some followers or people that will implement what they're saying. 
because uh, there's um, yeah, there's a saying that a dictator with no followers is just a clown. <laughs> so you need followers. So uh, the followers turn up in uh, the form of the strivers. Now, the strivers are, are sort of apolitical. They don't really care for the politics. They just want to come out on top. So it doesn't matter which way the wind's blowing, they'll go with it as long as they're winning, as it were. Okay. Now, below them, you have the normies, and the best description for them is that they are mystified and confused as to what's happening. We'll go into why in a second. Below them, you have the doubters. These are the people who are sceptical about the narrative but don't want to put their head above the parapet. And then finally, we have the rebels. They're generally the bullshit detectors and can see through the whole thing. Right. So okay. let's go to tool. Any questions or is that all clear? Okay, no, it's pretty clear. Should we go through then, now that we've got this table up and we're talking about it, we yep. go through these uh, various uh, groups. So let's start with the ringleaders. Now, they can't be very nice people. <laughs> Now, those are your sociopaths and psychopaths, generally speaking. And thanks for bringing that up, because um, in the book, I'm very careful to explain to people, look, we're always presented with a horizontal slice of the cake. So it's uh, rich versus poor. It's old versus young. It's gay versus straight. It's Christian versus Muslim. It's old versus young. Whatever it is, I always say that is always a horizontal slicing of the cake. And it's the wrong way to look at things. The correct way, in my opinion, is to slice the cake vertically, not horizontally. Right. And when you slice it vertically, you get to the sociopaths and the psychopaths. They exist in all elements of society, but are a very small section, the 1% to 4% of the population. And I would say that is uh, more where the problem lies than any of these false splits, which generally are just divide and conquer tactics. Right. In fact, I would imagine those divide and conquer tactics are part of the ringleaders' tactics. Correct. Exactly. As as long as we're fighting amongst themselves, we're not focusing on where the problem is. So it's a misdirection. You know? All that is misdirection. Yes, Pretty correct. well. Okay. Yeah, well, now, you're worried about which pronoun to use. They're running off in the States with 21 trillion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, tools of control, blackmail and inner circle. So I've often wondered about this. The, you know, the second, the layer just under that. Um, and I guess they're kind of, you know, they've bought the the idea, but they are held in, in that layer, what, because the ringleaders have something on them or there's some sort of incentive, but that's balanced by some sort of fear which keeps them loyal to ringleaders. Well, we know this from the confession of Ronald Bernard, who was uh, a sort of elite um uh, level insider with the banking industry. Is he the Dutch guy? Yes. Yes, I saw that interview. It was chilling. Yeah, absolutely. So he was, for those who aren't familiar, um, he, I reference it in Chapter 9. But uh, to cut a long story short, he was flown abroad to take part in a child sacrifice. He refused to do it. 
Um, but it gave a real insight to the level of blackmail there. So I think what's going on is with psychopaths uh, in particular, but I, I group them together under the sociopath label, mm. um, they know that they can't ever be trusted because they don't have any morality. So they're going to surround themselves with people and they're going to think, well, I can't trust, if I can't trust myself, how can I trust anyone else? So the idea is that you have so much skin in the game that you uh, can't do anything but follow what you're told. And that type of level of skin in the game is what I think Ronald Bernard and others have highlighted. Yeah, um, I, I remember that interview well, and I was particularly interested in his body language as he was being interviewed. Yeah, I found I found it quite sincere. That's why I made it chilling. Um, well, you're not the only one because uh, there was a professional body language expert who went through the whole lot and commented and said she considered it 100% authentic. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so obviously, okay, it's assumed that the ringleaders lack humanity and empathy, but for the next layer down, you've also got to have people who ultimately – must lack humanity and empathy because they've got themselves into this, I don't know, trap or following in the first place. And you wouldn't do that if you'd thought through the morality of what you're doing. Yeah. So I'd say there with the strivers, you're looking more at a lack of morality. Uh, of course, none of these boxes are absolutes and it's just a framework to try yes. and focus in the key points um, to look at. So they so don't have a moral say, compass that works necessarily. Well, they might have, but uh, they're willing to completely ignore it if they do. But generally, no, you're right. So with the strivers, and I think if we look at the last three and a half years, it's not exclusively so, but let's cross out the word strivers and put doctors yeah, I was, uh, that was going to be my next comment. Are we talking about people like doctors and bureaucrats at a certain level? Yeah, absolutely. And so they are controlled by uh, its carrot and stick. So generally monetary incentives and threats if they speak out, which is what we saw. I mean, we saw particularly in the States, but other countries as well, there was a financial incentive for everyone who got vaccinated but more than that, they had other triggers that you had a massive bonus. For example, if 50% of your patients were vaccinated, 60, 70. So all the monetary, the carrot was there in a big way. And of course, the threat was because uh, the odd person who did speak out uh, generally lost their job. Yeah, and that explains why there was such a, um, some would say, a rational response from the various industry bodies like, uh, medical associations, people who represent doctors and uh, uh, all sorts of groups were coming down so irrationally hard on anyone who said anything. So that's part of that threat zone. Correct. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, they're, either, they're probably at that level, I think, are on board. I mean, they did it in the UK via Ofcom. They said any broadcaster who was spreading misinformation would be closed down. But, of course, their version of uh, misinformation probably, uh, well, we call it the truth, of course, but, uh, yeah. you know, we and, know and how also, it works. Also in that group, I'd, I'd have to, well, ask you, 
we have to bundle in university academics. Yeah, sure. I mean, lots of people can go into that group, but I think um, the one that stands out the most uh, is the doctors yeah. because they, you know, I think uh, Brett Weinstein's just covered this. He went through the Nuremberg Code and said every single one of the clauses within that has been broken in the last three and a half years. And people, and have, been so saying people have been saying that out loud. From you know? day one. Correct. Yeah. Sorry, I jumped in on you there. Finish what you're going to no, say. No, no, go ahead. It's fine. Okay. So, so or, already we've got at the top, um, at the top, we've got uh, those people, the ringleaders. We know that they're motivated. They use blackmail. They have an inner circle. Incentives and threats applying to the strivers, doctors, academics, public servants, who um, also are on good salaries, right? So they, the, the, in yep. their lives, they're geared to that earning, and they and the worst possible scenario is they would lose it. So there's fear there. Yeah. So okay. money and social status are their drivers. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, then we're at the normies, and this is. Um, I mean, I, I like the term normies, but I don't think the normies who are realizing they're being called normies now like it too much. Anyway. No, and I'd agree. I mean, any kind of, I mean, it's a fairly neutral one. I mean, there's much worse, particularly if you're uh, in the truth of category, but from what we've been called. But no, uh, I don't like it either, but it's probably the best description. Yeah, no, I think got, it does. Unless no, you've got another one, you know. No, no, I haven't thought of a, a better one yet. But I have noticed that some people don't like being called normies or referred to as that. Anyway, mystified yeah. and confused. So not very deep thinkers, just getting along at a certain level of life, I suppose, if all the settings stay the same and and nothing gets too out of control, they're happy, which means they probably don't want their world ever disrupted. And that makes them yeah. then, what, vulnerable to propaganda. Because if it looks like, if it's, it looks like the life that they've got is the normal one, then it's very easy to propagandize against anyone who might be otherwise. Yeah. So, um, and as well as the propaganda they're being fed, um, there's also, you could argue, even more powerful is the omission. I think mean, George Orwell has said the greatest lie is the omission. It's what you're not being told as much as what you are being told. It's two sides of the coin. So, yeah. Um, and because I think it's not just because uh, they don't have critical thinking, I think uh, to be slightly kinder to the group as well, uh, although I agree on that point, is um, a lot of people have just got very busy lives. You know, if you've got a young family, uh, you're working 12 hours a day, this, that and the other, how much time do you have to reflect on what's going on and even reflect on yourself and what you're doing probably not very much so you're going then to what you consider is a trusted source which is the mainstream media which of course as we all know is the last place to look for the truth and the top layers know that the media is trusted so know that yes. manipulation of that media is going to be effective but and, and speaking to your point about busy lives 12 hours a day all that if if any of that pattern is interrupted, um, that can generate hostility towards anyone perceived to be disrupting that. Yes, that's a very good point, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, the doubters. I think we're starting to see a few more doubters now. And this is I, true, yeah. 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 Speak to that. So skeptical but, and I've noticed this in some private conversations, there's a lot to be said, but they'll never say it, you know, publicly. Yeah, so the doubters, um, so they basically, they understand something's wrong. They may not have a full understanding of what's wrong, but they don't want to put their head above the parapet. And this is quite... um, this is a problem because you will get people, they'll speak to a rebel and go, oh, we're totally behind what you're doing. You know, uh, maybe we're even willing to uh, finance what you're doing. But I personally don't want to put my head above the parapet. Well, this is where um, the key problem lies because the whole thing collapses when enough people speak out. Or should I say, when uh, we've generated, uh, got everyone to a percentage of a awareness of what's going on. Yeah, critical mass. Yeah. Um, tell me, um, the proportion of normies and doubters, speaking of percentages, how big do you think those, well, those groups are separately? And, uh, and then I guess we can work out how big that group is together and to know that they're, in those two groups, there are definitely the numbers to create a change. Yeah, I mean, I can't give exact percentages because I don't know, Paul. No, no. Uh, yeah, what yeah. I would say out of the five groups, the normies for most of the time remain by far the largest group. Right. Um, but, yeah. So the doubters don't need to be persuaded. Um, they, they only need to find the courage to to shout it out. It's the, nor- yes. the normie group that needs to be, if any of this informed. is to change, informed and flipped. Yes. So this is where we get to uh, communicating the truth. And the point here is um, you can throw every bit of evidence you want at someone, but if you're not doing it in the right way, uh, they ain't going to be listening. And so my point is it's not just about uh, what you communicate more important is how you communicate it which we'll get on to shortly yeah so yeah uh i think many people have had that experience sending links saying hey you should look at this you should look at that this guy says this yeah the eyes tend to, to play generally it doesn't work so we've got four listeners 10 solutions that do which we'll go into later on okay let's get back to you know um more in the book how how far do you think, okay, if you were to score this exercise out of 10, 10 being the best, even though it's dastardly, what's the score? Ooh, I don't know. Uh, they seem to have been know. pretty good at it. It's worked pretty yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, do we give them a spinal tap 11? Maybe. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, it's been done very well. Uh, from a psychopathic perspective. Is that the AI, the suspicion of AI because of its... I think in terms of what we said before, in terms of the organisation of what would you need to do in order to make this happen. But uh, AI isn't responsible for blackmailing all the people, Uh, having trained uh, these young leaders by the WEF and put them into place. I mean, this is why this has been uh, such a long-term... Um, plan that to execute this, you've had to have uh, people who will either is block 
Well, most leaders are blackmailable because um, of the type of characters that uh, politics tends to attract. But, uh, you know, you need to be sure that in all those uh, cases that they're going to do what you want them to do and not uh, come out with something different. And I suppose if you get the job done, you're uh, rewarded. And we've seen that with our former prime minister. She's been richly rewarded. She's had the equivalent of a knighthood. She's at Harvard. She's working for the royal family. She's part of the Christchurch call um, looking at disinformation, misinformation around the world and how to enforce that. So that seems like some sort of reward. Yeah, I'd also look at a bank account as well. Um, yeah, I know there was um, a case in Australia from one senator. Uh, there was a claim of something like uh, they had 50 million US dollars in it. So, I mean, it's just ginormous. So, but... This is how they operate, and they do it with when they go into African countries as well, because um, we touch on the book in terms of the IMF and the loans they give out. And they gave a loan to Malawi, I think, at 56% interest rate per annum. How could they afford and, that? Well, they can't. No. That's the point. Ridiculous. So you're going, well, why on earth would a leader agree to signing yeah. that? level of interest rate and john perkins covered this in um confessions of an economic hitman he said to go in there and go right here's a huge financial incentive for you we'll make you a multi-millionaire or the jackals will come along and take you out yeah so you can either get rich or you can get dead very quickly and uh when faced with that unfortunately a lot of um, humans don't have the moral courage to say no. And he gave two examples of people who did say no. One guy who was president of Ecuador who uh, then ended up dead a few weeks later. Yeah. So this is how they're operating. But, yeah, the effect for, I think, Malawi it was, that loan, is that uh, they got them to sell all their grain reserves. They then had a famine and people were starving to death. So it was just a wealth strip. The resources yeah. of a country. Pure yeah, correct. I mean, the whole, I mean, this is the problem with our financial system is you get, you can create money out of nothing and then charge interest on it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the game is A, to get everyone to into as much debt as possible and convert that money out of nothing into tangible assets. Yeah. And that's how they do it when they go into the African countries. It's like, okay, you need to privatise uh, your water, your utilities, and a lot of the money doesn't even go to that country. It goes to the contractors going into that country to put the infrastructure in. Yeah. Okay. Um, the global nature then of this, because I think we've all experienced, anyway, Western countries, a similar version of uh, tailored maybe to the local conditions, but a similar kind of lockstep experience. So this is global. This is this is a yep. move being pulled globally. Absolutely, yeah. So we can be certain about that, right? Yeah, and I think there's, um, again, I don't know if you're familiar with the Deagle predictions of uh, population, uh, depopulation in the States, Europe, Canada, New Zealand and Australia from around 2017, 2018. No, I'm not aware of that. 
Okay, so there's um, a military expenditure website called Deagle, and um, they had some absolute outrageous um, figures for likely uh, population. I have heard of that. I have heard of it. In 2025. Yeah. So this was probably, you know, seven years in the future. And I think, for example, the predicted population in the UK was minus 77%. And you go in. Wasn't it like 200 million gone out of the US or something like that? It was some phenomenal figure. Yeah. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, hang on, either this is someone's gone completely nuts and uh, this is pure fantasy, or maybe they're into no, something the rest of us don't. And I think they got challenged on it because I remember um, my friend Sandy and- uh, Adams in Glastonbury covers this a lot in terms of Agenda 2030 stuff, Agenda 21. And when she looked at the site, it didn't have any reasons behind. But a lot of people have said, well, hang on a sec. How do you get that level of depopulation in such a short time frame as an estimate when it's never happened before in, you know, uh, for millennia? Yeah. And they came back and said uh, the reason would be uh, pandemics and people committing suicide. Committing suicides. That's an interesting one. Mm -hmm. Because I know about pandemics, but that one... Is that is that like a euphemism for something? Like- well, I think, well, look at the suicide rates um, in the last three and a half years. They've all jumped up massively. And there is an argument to say that um, if you've allowed something to be injected into you when you didn't need to, and that kills you, uh, I don't agree with this, but some would claim that you've just suicided yourself. Okay, so it's that basis. Right, that, that, uh, well, I'm guessing, but yeah. I'm assuming that that was, you know, that, that's a mentality of the psychopath. But, you know? but but to know that or to make a prediction so vast with no historical basis whatsoever, not even close, it's, a, it's either a complete screw-up of someone who hit publish when they shouldn't have, that was fantasising yeah. about something, or there was some... Or it's the plan. Yeah. And as we know now, it looks like it was the plan. Now, I don't think they'll necessarily achieve those figures because I think there's so many unknowns in all this, Paul, because, um, you know, uh, with the different batches, we're seeing different impacts. Uh, You know, was the product stored correctly? Blah, blah, blah. I listened to someone the other day saying if they're not stored at the correct temperature, they turn to mush. So there's so many variables here. So I would say to anyone who has been vaccinated, uh, don't panic. Uh, Yes, we can see there's uh, people being maimed and people dying, but there's also the case where um, I think there was a mix-up in medical records, and this was to do with cancer. And a group who all had cancer were told they were cancer-free, and another group that didn't have cancer were told they had cancer. And guess what happened? Yeah. Some of the ones that had cancer became cancer-free, and the ones who didn't have it got it. Yeah. So I do think there's uh, some kind of responsibility within the truth movement 
for not just repeating all the fear porn of what's going to happen. It is reality. It is happening. They are covering the numbers. But just because uh, that is doesn't mean to say they've achieved it on the scale they're aiming for. Right. I hear what you're saying. Though I must say, just in my own experience, that I'm starting to see a lot of that. Yeah, because in my I own think circle. I, I think someone said that the main problem would happen two to five years after um, receiving the injection, because there's something called antibody dependent enhancement. Yeah, and this is one of the absolute outrages of the whole thing. Uh, there was a quote from um, Lee Merritt. Because when they did this uh, on the animals uh, using this mRNA technology, uh, all the animals died. Yeah. And you're going, well, normally, under most circumstances, if that's the outcome, it doesn't get any further. You know, you don't get to put it in humans if that's a reaction. So the fact that you've ignored that tells you everything, really. My guest is Fergus O'Connor Greenwood. His book is 180, Unlearn the Lies You've Been Taught to Believe. Okay, I want to get to the the E word, the word evil. A lot of people, including myself, sense an evil here. And yeah, um, psychopathic and sociopathic people could be termed as evil. But is there something more at play, do you suspect? And I know we're getting into territory that's not empirical or, you know, it's more people's feelings, but what's your sense of of evil in this? Okay, so um, I deal with this particularly in the last chapter called Taboo and Speculation. Um, maybe we can chat about a guy called Jerry Mazinski, but um, that's more of an extended discussion. What I would say is that uh, we're looking at an anti-human agenda. Right. And when you frame it in those terms, you have to ask the question, is what's behind this actually human, if it's an anti-human agenda? That's where I was hitting. Yeah. So, um, well, we can go down that rabbit hole if you want. Well, I, I, think, I, think, I think it's we can because this is crossing a lot of people's minds right now, people yeah. who – um, maybe didn't sort of think, well, not think too much about it, but were kind of on the fence <clears throat> about that kind of realm and now are thinking, well, um, I can only explain this by attributing such a horrible evil to it. And then, of course, you wonder, well, what is that evil? Where does it come from? How can people be so nasty? Yeah. So... <clears throat> um I think the best, the example I use, and I think it's the best one. I mean, we there's been this has been written in literature for thousands of years. We can go back to uh, the archons that the Gnostics spoke of. I think that's also in the Nag Hammani codes um, that came out. Um, you've got incidents. Obviously, the Bible references it. I think. Um, isn't the lots of cases, not I'm an expert on the Bible, far from it, but lots of cases of Jesus supposedly spending most of his time getting rid of demons out of people. Yeah. So, uh, but this all sounds like 
pure fantasy for most of us who come from a rational background. But um, what impressed me was the work of Jerry Mazinski. So he is a uh, now retired um, US psychotherapist. And I think he has the best stories and experience um, that sort of brings this home. So I do recommend uh, anyone listening, if you want more on this, he's done lots of interviews. Uh, I did one with the Deep State Consciousness channel that ran for a couple of hours. I think the Sheep Farm Boys in the UK interviewed him for eight hours uh, and four separate uh, interviews. But in a few minutes, let me just give you an overview. So um, he, fortunately for us, was a gentleman who was basically dealing with um, schizophrenics, both in prisons and mental institutions. And fortunately for us, he had a curious mind because he wanted to know where the voices were coming from. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, inside the red, just give him a pill and get on with it. He said, well, I'm not happy with that. I'm going to delve a bit deeper. So the first thing he noticed was the voices were always negative. It was never, oh, let's go to the shop and buy a lovely bunch of flowers. It was always something that was almost like antagonizing the individual. He then noticed uh, a phenomenal statistic, which was the prescribing psychiatrists who were giving the drugs to the um, inmates and individual patients, Note, uh, Mazinski noticed that those individuals were attacked five times more often physically than any other professional that the um, inmates and patients were dealing with. Oh, okay. And he said that, you know, statistically, that's massive, you know. So he wanted to delve further into it. So he started asking a few people who, um, you know, and quite often after seeing these prescribing psychiatrists, uh, they would come off the meds. And so um, as well as attacking the prescribing psychiatrist. So Mazinski started asking around and he couldn't get much out of these people. So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll do a survey. Pros and cons with the voices when you're on the meds and when you're off the meds. And he gave this to uh, people and uh, he got it all back. And pretty much everyone said, yeah, the voices were a thousand times worse when they're off the meds than when they're on the meds. He said, okay, if that's the case, why are you coming off your meds? And not one of them would tell him. And this went on for years and years. And he kept asking and he couldn't get an answer. And eventually he got one young woman who said, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. Right. He said, well, you know, I've been around the block a few years, you know, just try it and see. She said, okay, the voices told me that the prescribing psychiatrist was trying to poison me. Okay. Now, so he went, okay, I'm going to go back to lots of other people who didn't uh, say why this is the case and just ask them the question. He said, you know that time you came off your meds, yeah? Uh, was it because of prescribing, the voices told you the prescribing psychiatrist was trying to poison you? And every single one of them said, how the hell did you know that? I think I know where this is heading. Yeah, so we have, um, when you have, I did a degree in maths, so I always want, I'm a sceptic and I always want confirmation on this stuff. But 
the probability of all of them coming out with the same answer is pretty much zero. And add that unless to the, there's a factor, another factor involved. And add that to the assaults. Yeah. Yeah. So what really brought this home to him was one of the inmates said to him one day, oh, the voice wants to speak to you directly. Wow. He said, okay. mm, hang on, what do you mean? Because whenever I'm chatting with inmates and patients, there's always the voice says this, the voice says that. You know, it's never direct. He yeah. goes, well, come in the office then. This guy comes in the office. He then slumps in his chair. His head goes to one side. A completely different voice emanates from this guy and says, what right do you think you have to interfere in our lives? Ooh. Then this sort of charge of electricity shot out the guy, went along the ceiling and landed in the waste paper basket next to him. He looked in and there was nothing there. He said at this point, he was basically crapping himself and said, I think it's, you know, time to be over. And But the guy had said, sorry, uh, Mr. Bit, which was, um, oh, I have to leave now. The guy gets up and walks out. So anyway, Mazinski takes the rest of the day off and who can blame him? Fair enough, yeah. Yeah, and he ends up interviewing the guy a couple of months down the line. And he said, could you just, from your perspective, tell us what you think went on? Because, you know, you said, you know, I have to leave now. Uh, he said, yeah, that was because the voice was telling me to shank you. Shank uh, as in a broken bit of glass that you stab into people in prison in order to kill them. So okay. the voice had said to shank him. And Mazinski said, why didn't you? He said, I didn't have one on me. Okay, so it would have happened. Well, if it could was... well have happened, but who in that circumstance is driving um, yeah. the agenda is the point. And this became um, Mazinski's, part of Mazinski's conclusions, is that the voices were, number one, outside of the person. Okay, so other other so call them interdimensional whatever but these voices were not emanating from the individuals in nearly all the cases i'm not saying 100 percent because i don't know but he said in the vast majority of cases these voices were external and he said for the patients who understood that it was external most of them had a good chance of recovery because they now had a known enemy that they could try and target okay so I mean, what we're saying here in the common language is some sort of possession. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and so, not, his yeah. so his conclusions were, one, uh, they can enter the body usually after a psychologically traumatic event. So trauma, alcohol, and drugs are the gateways normally. Right. They're able to access memories and influence one's thought stream. Leech off any generated negative emotional energy, i.e. louche, and can at times provide their hosts with supernatural levels of strength. Yeah. Now, um, there is an SRA survivor called Jennifer who said the following, because um, if you want to know the nature of evil, this would probably be, uh, well, it's an explanation for it. 
Okay. She said, I was a sex sacrifice. My father became empowered and rich for his abuse of me, and he gifted me to the order to empower other Luciferians among them. I discovered that sexually abusing a child usually opens a spiritual portal to allow in high-level demons, and the most powerful are child sexual abuse demons, and the highest amongst those are incest demons called Nephilim spirit demons. Demon-possessed people get superhuman abilities. And there's cross-referencing for that um, from various different sources. And this brings us back actually to the vaccination, courtesy of Rudolf Steiner. And he said this over a hundred years ago in 1917. I have told you that the spirits of darkness are going to inspire their human hosts in whom they will be dwelling to find a vaccine that will drive all inclination towards spirituality out of people's souls when they are still very young. And he said the materialistic doctors would be the ones that would uh, be doing that process. And that's happened. And here we are. Here we are. So, yes, I do think there's a spiritual angle to this. I say that understand you are at war. That war is psychological, it is biological, and it is spiritual. And if you are not fighting it on all three planes, you are not going to win. Okay, so now let's get to how we all wake up, because that is that is our challenge, right? That yeah. If this is to be won at any level, more people have to be aware. So you, you talked earlier about, you know, <laughs> supplying the facts and the links and the, and the this and the that, communicating this in a way that that has that effect of, of waking up or at least giving someone a chance of doing that. What, what are your recommendations for, for how people can do that in their everyday lives? I mean, how would you go about that? Yeah, so I say we have five main hurdles that people face. There's uh, the communication trap that most of us fall into, and then 10 solutions on what does work, and then how you can reach everyone in the world in just 10 steps. So if we apply that to New Zealand, you can get to everyone in the country in just five steps via word of mouth. Okay. Do you want to go through them? Yeah, sure. So let's start with the five hurdles. So number one, as Walter Lippmann said in Public Opinion in 1921, we do not see and then define. We define first and then see. What does that mean? We decide on the story first, and then we go out and find the evidence that confirms the story we've already decided on. Yeah. So uh, everyone thinks it's the other way around, but it isn't. Number two, as Mark Twain almost said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. So one of the reasons this is one of the reasons the media has the power, because they get to put the story first. Yeah. So it's easier to get someone to adopt a position than it is to get them out of that position once it's been adopted. And hence, if you get your story in first, that's most likely to move people into that position, and therefore you've got an uphill battle to get people out of that. 
I would add to that, if you don't mind me jumping in, I would add Go to for that. It. And that comes also, and this is why mainstream media is so crucial here, that comes with the at the consumer and the expectation of a certain look and a certain professionalism. So you can come up with truth shot on your AMCAM and no one's going to believe it, but you can lie on the set of a beautiful news show with all the, you know, beautiful talking heads and all the fancy graphics and branding and, and all of that. It could all be complete BS, but because it's presented so well and to yeah. a legacy standard, it's automatically assumed that it's credible. Yeah, I think it was Nixon who said um, the American people won't believe anything unless it comes through a TV. Yeah, and and has a professional network yeah. look. Yeah, I think that was the assumption yeah. connected yeah. with that, but it's good to point it out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if it was crappy, it wouldn't be so believable. Anyway, carry on. Um, so... Number three, accept that some people will be unreachable. Not sure of the exact percentage here. Call it 10 to 20% max. So this was highlighted best by a KGB defector called Yuri Besmanov in 1984 in an interview with uh, Georg Griffin. And he said, a person who is demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell him nothing. Even if I shower him with information, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him a concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it. So notice the point there with demoralization. It's not just demotivation. It's removal of morality from society because de. Uh, the lower the morality within the society, the easier it is to control them. And this is why we also see that being pushed. Well, that must also mean that there is a certain level of demoralization inherent, ready to be taken advantage of. So is that where we've got to? Exactly. So that process has been going on for years. Um, I cover it in Chapter 7 because it goes all the way back to the Bolshevik Revolution. But um, as the cultural Marxists uh, threatened and then did, it was it's called the long march through the institutions. This was a long, slow. And this is how, um, you know, the dark side tend to work. Uh, there's, a, there's a quote that uh, evil walks in small steps because if it didn't, it would be uncovered uh, very easily. And obviously there's plenty of time to do these sorts of things. Time is not a constraint, necessarily. Seemingly not, no. I mean, I think there's a, there's a quote from David Rockefeller I've got in there, which is saying something like, after 500 years, everything is now in place through, um, you know, a one-world government. It's like, after 500 years, how long have you been alive, mate? Well, well the thing is, that, 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 that shouldn't mean anything to anyone who has a normal lifespan. Um, because if you can't achieve a goal inside your lifespan, then then you haven't achieved anything. So to have that spread over such a long period of time, I mean that that raises some questions. I, I mean, why why can these things hang together over such a long period of time when people are just confined to you know sixty to ninety year old lifespans? 
Well, it's a very good question, and we can neither go back down the rabbit hole we've already just been down. There are other reasons as well. These people are part of um, secret societies, cabals, where you do have this um, vision that is carried through the generations. And this, But this is one of the difficulties and why I highlight it in the book, is that you've got your thinking and you've got their thinking. Mm. And their thinking is sociopathic. Uh, it's not based on nationalism. It's uh, internationalism. And, yeah, you've got time frames which are beyond people's lifetimes. And given the fact there's a small percentage of people who can't even see beyond their own noses, mm. uh, this is so far off the radar, they don't think it's even a thing. Okay, I think we still had a few items to go, so carry on. I don't yeah, know if so, still, you haven't lost your place, have you? <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. So uh, number four is the backfire effect. So um, if we're having a conversation, Paul, we're think I'm thinking, well, I'll give a few points, you'll juggle those around, maybe adjust your position. You do the same back to me, I'll juggle those, maybe adjust my position. When you're dealing with people with strongly held beliefs, that isn't how it operates. If their beliefs are challenged, their beliefs become more embedded, not less. So that's why it's called the backfire effect. You think you're trying to bring them towards your opinion, and all you've done is buried them deeper into their existing beliefs. Okay. And number five is... And this one sounds a bit counterintuitive. People will forgive you for being wrong, but often won't forgive you for being right. Yeah, ain't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> and you're thinking, hang on, okay, why? So, I mean, Jordan Peterson covered this, and he said, we have this, like, um, invisible um, counter in our subconscious, and it doesn't like us to be shown to be wrong, particularly in public, because if you're shown to be wrong, then you're going down the social hierarchy. If you're going down the social hierarchy, you are going to generally have a more difficult life. Your brain understands that on a subconscious level and wants to fight it. Okay. Yeah, that I can understand that. Yeah. Okay. So that brings us to the communication trap, yeah. which uh, I and probably everyone else has fallen into at some point or other. And that is learn the truth. Get angry at being lied to. This also inflame the truth tellers need to be right. Communicate that truth while still annoyed at being duped in an unconsidered way, triggering the backfire effect, i.e. rejection of the message in others. Become frustrated at people not seeing the truth, so try again with even more evidence and conviction and fail bigger. Yeah. So hand up i've been there so Same. it got me thinking like okay well this isn't working is there anything that might work uh and what i understood was the truth movement does have, doesn't have an evidence problem it has a communication problem so i came up with something called the trim tab experiment which is how to communicate the truth to others without alienating them and that reference of buckminster fullerism uh, the trim tab is a tiny rudder within the main rudder that you have, say, on a super tanker. So in order to turn the super tanker, you don't move the rudder first. You move the trim tab 
tiny rudder within the rudder to move the bigger rudder that then turns the whole ship around. So the point is you as an individual can be a trim tab rudder that goes on to change everything. Yeah, I get that. That's a good analogy. So um, the opposite of everything that you've said there is probably the way to do it. I mean, the way we talk here at our radio station is that we understand, I mean, you've really put it into focus, but we kind of understand that in the big picture. So, uh, and I've had people on this program before talking um, uh, similar to what we're talking now. And what I got from them was ask questions in a, well, this is one of the strategies anyway, ask questions of people like you're asking it yourself to yourself, but with someone else and put it out as a kind of like an innocent question, an innocent loaded question. Yeah. So you've picked up on one of the 10 solutions there. Ask questions, don't make statements because a question opens the mind, whereas a statement tends to close it. Yeah. Um, so other solutions are as follows. Um, number one, be kind first, be right later. <laughs> I can see the sense of that. Yeah. So I say if you're coming to speak to someone, you need to imagine that uh, they're a traumatised puppy that you're picking up from the dog rescue home. Right. You're not going to go in there and try and teach the dog a new trick. You're going to start off by winning its trust via empathy, compassion and love. Yeah. And the same works with the human variety. Even try feeding it, same there. So it's a completely different approach. Empathy first, evidence later. Right. Number two, which links in with this, you win by not winning. So, yeah, so it's not a you, contest. It's not a contest. Correct. Yeah. You win by not winning. If your aim is to convince the other person of your position, you have already lost before you open your mouth. Okay. Let me repeat that. If your aim is to convince the other person of your position, you have already lost before you open your mouth. Why? Because you've got the wrong objective. The objective could be, as you've already said, getting them to ask you a question. Because people who aren't, you can't give solutions to people not asking questions. Or another objective could be simply to keep them in listening mode, not combat mode, which we'll come to shortly. But you need to refocus on your objective and convincing them of your perspective is going to be a guaranteed fail. Okay. So that brings us to point three. And this is called you seed, not succeed. So seeding an idea is like uh, seeding a plant in your garden. If you took an apple pit and put it in your garden one night, you wouldn't expect to see a fully grown tree the next morning. So why are you expecting people who have strongly held belief systems to change their position overnight? The factors you're missing are absorption, number four, this is absorption and processing time. I've had a case where um, I was explaining something to someone and they just said, that's not the truth, that's your truth. Yeah. 
And at that point, I realized, okay, this person's entered full-on combat mode. So my reaction was just to shut up and say nothing. Just let them have the moment. That's it, because we're into ego mode. There's no winning from here. Yeah. Two months later, um, I had a chat with him, and I was saying, look, I know uh, I need skeptics to read my book as well as, you know, people already of that mindset. Uh, would you mind reading my manuscript on 9-11? Because I know you generally believe the official story. He said, I might change my mind on that. Oh. So literally by doing nothing – but having had that challenge and maybe him thinking he's gone a bit over the top, he's gone away, done some research and realised, oh, there is some truth in this uh, and his position changed. So don't underestimate the fact by saying nothing that you're not having any effect. I would love to have a conversation with you about 9-11 sometime. Well, there's a whole chapter in it. Um, chapter three covers it in enormous detail. Um so, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Okay. Um, we can do that for another day. But I'll send would... you the book. You can read it up and see if there's anything in there that uh, you weren't already familiar with. But, yeah, there's multiple. Uh, if... I include it because it's uh, – I talk about other false flags as well in the book, but it is the one where they the official story includes the impossible on multiple occasions. Yep. Yeah, um, and therefore makes it the best false flag uh, ever in history to study. Physics defying. Yes, correct. Um, okay, um, and you've still got a few more points there. Don't want to miss any. Yeah. So um, next up, if you're talking with someone who's heavily propagandized, you probably find that quite often uh, they just want to unload uh, and regurgitate everything they think they know over you. So I say, this point is let the vitriol wash over you. Don't react. But you need to let them get their emotions out. And this references Edward de Bono's red hat technique. I think he wrote book Six Hats or something. But what he noticed was I think he went into a a shell were having meetings that are lasting 150 days. And he managed to get them down to three days. (laughs) And he did that by saying, okay, today we're putting the red hat on the table and the red hat referenced emotions. And like, everyone gets to put what they th- feel about this whole situation on the table and everyone else has to listen. Yeah. And by doing that, as soon as people felt that they'd um, been listened to, they didn't then keep coming back to the point which they didn't think had been addressed before. So letting the emotions out of the other person without you reacting is a huge point in, and once they've got it all out, then and only then can you really engage. Yeah, which no, that makes to, sense. Yeah. Yeah. So which brings us to the next point, which is an analogy by Jonathan Haidt, based on the work of Daniel Kahneman, really. But um, he's, he said, imagine a rider on a person on top of an elephant yeah the person is the logic and reasoning in your brain and the elephant is the emotion he said so uh when you face with that he said he said talk to the elephant first mm-hmm. you got to deal with the emotional side before you get to 
the logic and reasoning and that's why things like be kind first be right later work so well yeah yeah for sure so another objective is i say just to keep the conversation going so if someone's uh, coming at you with some information you think is a complete load of utter bs please don't tell them this because it's not going to be very helpful what you can say a bit from zen philosophy just come out with is that so you're not agreeing or disagreeing but you're keeping the conversation going yeah yeah that makes sense too yeah so the aim is to keep them in listening mode and out of combat mode combat mode just means anything where the body language has gone negative maybe the frowning anything like that yeah so voice raised a voice bit. yeah yeah as soon as that's happening you've basically got two choices one shut up or two and what has worked for me in the past is when i recognize that i've said look i'm not trying to convince you of anything i'm just trying to show you a possibility it's totally up to you whether you want to walk through that door what you're doing there is handing all the power in the conversation back to them as soon as they realize they're not being attacked they flip out of defensive mode quite right. often yeah so we've already covered things like questions not statements and uh probably the last one and another really key one is people slide from a to z they don't jump from a to z right so if you're dealing with someone well first of all you need to deal who we're dealing with what their values are etc there's a recommendation that you shouldn't say anything until you've understood where they're at but if they're a person for example who believes everything the government tells them they're at a on the scale there is no point talking about the mazinski stuff and satanic ritual abuse because they will look at you like you've got three heads <laughs> they will and yep. you know we've all had it so the point is you go okay this person's at a i'm going to drop a small truth in which is b and see if they nibble yep. and there's a great example of this i picked up off the internet um so i can't give the person's name because it wasn't referenced but he said the following and this i think is a great example of doing the trim tab approach he said everyone needs to stop trying to red pill people who are in a coma I've been pink pilling people. I take one small truth and show it to them. Then let them think about that. Then they will start asking questions. Then I will show them another and it is working. And I know these techniques work because I've given out to people having no success and people have come back. My success rate has gone exponential. I had an email off an Australian doctor the other day. He said, thank you so much. You've massively improved, uh, you know, my ability to dialogue with people around me using these things. So they do work, not 100% guaranteed, but um, you will, if you follow them, have a way better chance of um, yeah, interacting and waking, helping. It's more about helping them to wake themselves up rather than you forcing it on them. It's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you, Fergus. Thanks for making some time. Um, and I want to read your book. Um, I'm sure we get hold of a copy. And uh, I'll I'm send sure, you one. I'm sure there'll be some interest from some of our listeners. And and let's um, have another chat sometime because I want to talk. I think it's okay now to talk about 
for a while it wasn't, but I think it is. Yeah. Well, if anyone wants the book, uh, they can get it. Um, uh, it's print on demand through Amazon Australia yeah. yep. as the paperback. Uh, I've got the signed copies of the hardbacks, but the postage to New Zealand is ginormous. <laughs> yeah. You're looking at £25 for the book and maybe £40, £45 postage. I think we'll we'll do the print on demand, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that'd be my top recommendation. I've just made a management a decision. Here. <laughs> yeah, but so no. if anyone does want to get hold of me, though, they can get me on my email address, which is about the only place you can get me, which is Fergus Greenwood. That's Fergus spelled the Irish spelling F-E-A-R-G-U-S. Yep. Greenwood, G-R-E-N-W-O-O-D, at protonmail.com. And just a last quick question. Since you have written and published this, has anything changed for you from this experience? Because you already were preloaded. You knew, knew what you wanted to say, but now at the other end of it, is there anything different? I think the main difference is, I think, we're going through the process itself. Um, I think, I mean, it, I'm just um, delighted that... Um, the aims I set out to achieve, I think, have probably been done. Number one was to write an 800-page non-fiction book, which was a page-turner and would also appeal to both the newbies and uh, those veteran conspiracy people who've been down the rabbit holes for a long time. I've had feedback on both of those. Probably the Probably the nicest, uh, um, you know, one I got was a guy, I was speaking in Lancaster and a guy came up to me afterwards and said, oh, I've already bought and read your book. I said, thank you. He said, I've got a story for you. I said, go on then. He said, oh, I gave it to my friend's son, who's a teenager who doesn't read books. And he passed it over and the kid said, what the hell am I meant to do with that? He said, just read the prologue and see how you go. Well, the teenage kid who doesn't read books finished the 800-page non-fiction book in two weeks flat. Wow. And they're okay. like, okay, they don't, compliments don't come much better than that. That's I think the record at the moment, though, is to Tim Price, the fund manager, he finished it in a weekend. <laughs> All is either a very quick reader or he spent every moment of that weekend reading. <laughs> well, it's an easy read. Some of the content uh, is uncomfortable because it's the real truth, uh, or as close as I think I can get to it, whatever that is. Um, but it's been done, so it flows. It's an easy read. And, yeah, so many people come back to me and said, uh, great, plain English, and I couldn't put it down. Well, Fergus O'Connor Greenwood, thank you for coming on Reality Check Radio. A lot to think about there and some very useful well, tools in the toolbox now to to do our bit to try and help our fellow humans who are struggling at the moment, or even if they don't know it. Yeah, well, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Okay, and all the best, and hopefully we'll chat again soon. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, Fergus O'Connor Greenwood, his book, once again, 180, Unlearn the Lies You've Been Taught to Believe. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.